0: In the fun new Netflix action-comedy
1: series The Brother's Son, Michelle Yeoh plays the wife of the head of a powerful Taiwanese crime family. She's secretly raised her youngest son in the U.S. by herself to protect them both from being targeted by rival gangs. Her oldest son was left back in Taiwan and is now a remorseless killer. But when danger threatens the family, the oldest son flies to L.A. to protect his mother and brother, only to be confronted with, and puzzled by, the easy life they've made for themselves. I'm Glenn Weldon, and today we're talking about the brother's son on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. Joining me today is Waylon Wong. She's the co-host of NPR's daily economics podcast, The Indicator from Planet Money. Hey, Waylon.
2: Hi, great to be here. Great
1: to have you. Also with us is Kristen Meinzer. She co-hosts The Daily Fail, a podcast that does comedic close readings of the tabloids. She also co-hosts How to Be Fine, a podcast that looks at the good and bad of the wellness industry. Hey, Kristen.
3: Hey, Glenn. So glad to be back. Glad
1: to have you. All right. So The Brother's Son stars Michelle Yeoh as Eileen Mama Son, the wife of the leader of a Taiwanese crime family, or triad. She's lived in LA for more than a decade, hiding her family's true nature from everyone, including her youngest son, Bruce. As played by Samsung Lee, Bruce is a classic LA type, an aimless goofball with a passion for improv. Her oldest son Charles, played by Justin Chien, stayed back in Taiwan and has been groomed by his father into the triad's deadliest enforcer. The show is a genre mashup. If you just go by the plot, it's straight-ahead martial arts action as Charles is constantly fending off attacks on his mother and brother using any means necessary. But the show is also a soapy family drama full of emotional confrontations. The show also makes room to highlight the tense and often very funny dynamic between two very different brothers who grew up without one another but who have more in common than they realize. It's an eclect- and idiosyncratic eight-episode series set amid the sun-baked streets and strip malls of Los Angeles' San Gabriel Valley. The Brother's Son was created by relative newcomer Byron Wu and industry veteran Brad Falchuk, who co-created Glee, American Horror Story, and Pose with Ryan Murphy. The Brother's Son is streaming now on Netflix. Waylon, kick us off. What'd you think?
2: Yeah, overall, I really enjoyed this series. Uh-huh. I think there's so much creativity and visual humor in a lot of the fight scenes, including the one that opens the the whole series. like Once that happened, I totally sat up and took notice and then I was really hooked in for the rest of it and appreciated a lot of the the writing throughout. Uh, There's so much great specificity in the way the series depicts a certain kind of Asian American or Taiwanese American family's experiences. mm -hmm. I mean, I have a slightly different background. My parents are from Hong Kong and Southern China, so I guess we'd be Hong Kong triads if this was our family. (laughs) And I I grew (laughs) up in the Midwest and not in L.A. But there's lots of little details that really resonated with me, like down to the brands you see in the family's fridge. And I, Mm -hmm. a lot of these details are not commented on. They're just there as texture. And then for me, it gave the series such a grounded feel despite the very over-the-top nature of a lot of the soapy storylines and the violence and everything. And so mm-hmm. I really appreciated that texture. Mm-hmm. Also, the show takes a lot of risks. You know, it's I think it's really ambitious in all of the tones that it tries to strike and balance and how it balances humor with some of the darker stuff and some of the more more poignant stuff. And I will say that not all of it worked for me, but overall enough worked for me in this series that I would recommend it.
3: Excellent. Okay, Kristen, what about you? Oh, I absolutely loved it. Uh The minute I saw the trailer and I saw Michelle Yeoh, I said, I need to watch this Michelle Yeoh series. And I totally agree with Waylon here. Within the first scene, I was hooked and it was not because of Michelle Yeoh. It was because... The humor and the action, I just have to point out, sometimes is so over the top and unexpected. There is one scene in particular that takes place at a driving range that I was <laughs> yeah. giggling with glee. It is so over the top, and they use every single thing they possibly can to fight with in that driving range. And mm-hmm. also, just anytime there's a scene in a kitchen, just wait. Just wait. It may just seem like they're <laughs> making dinner. They're not just making dinner. And the way they use every kitchen scene is – so inventive and so electric, it's so fun, but there's also a lot of heart in this, too. Mm-hmm. I loved seeing the relationship between Michelle Yeoh and her sons, the sons with each other, just how crafty Michelle Yeoh's character is in this show, even though mm-hmm. she did hook me, but she wasn't the only reason I stayed. But sure. I did really love how great she was in this.
1: Yeah, she was. You know, I could feel. The The machinery of Hollywood screenplay writing 101 kicking in again and again in the series, like, yeah, he's X, but he's also Y. Like, yes, he's a remorseless <laughs> killer. He also loves to bake, which was right there in that first scene. Classic mm-hmm. idiosyncrasy. But I don't know. In the execution, it totally got me. I mean, Chien's commitment to the bit. This is a runner. This joke keeps coming back and back and back. His commitment mm-hmm. is total. The writing and the directing really support it, gives it the energy it needs, Work for me. Same thing with these lovable henchmen. I've seen the lovable henchman thing done before. I will see it done many times in my lifetime. Totally love those guys. I think we should give do some service journalism here and tell people that if you're sitting there waiting as I was for Michelle Yeoh to get unleashed on these mofos, some of that happens. Mostly, though, she is in crazy rich Asian modes. She is cutting people down to size with her expression, with her delivery, with her tongue, not with her fists. But Michelle Yeoh in any capacity is enough.
2: I was going to say, if you want Michelle Yo playing Mahjong, you got lots of Michelle Yeoh playing Mahjong, which makes me very happy. Yes, yes. And it's
3: not just Mahjong she's playing. It looks like it's just Mahjong, but there's always more to things. <laughs> there's
1: always more to this. And there's always more to the show. Like I was grooving to this and then I uh, made a series of Jim Cotta references and I started loving the show. <laughs> Uh, my only thing is, this is classic Netflix bloat. This is a great series. If it had been six episodes instead of eight, I think it would have been an all-time great series. There's a couple episodes in there where the plot idles, and that'd be fine mm-hmm. if we got backstory or characterization that expanded or deepened. And I think it we just underline. We just get more hits of what we already know. That's a real shame. But listen— I saw this before the holiday break. I spent the holiday break talking it up to everyone, accosting people on the streets, saying, you got to watch this show. But do you agree (laughs) with me about the bloat? I do want another season. I want more time in this world. But I thought the story it was told in season one couldn't really sustain episodes. What do you guys think?
2: Yeah, I think I'm with you that as a six-episode series, it would have been kind of perfectly paced. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think around maybe episode six, it did... Idle a little mm-hmm. bit. And then all of a sudden, they seem to like burn off a lot of plot, you know, in the very last episode. Right. And I think I just would have put some of those beats differently. Mm-hmm. And I think it could have just felt like mm-hmm. completely bombastic, full on, relentless action all the way through if it had been compressed a little bit more.
3: You know, I was fine with the eight episodes, but I do agree there were a couple of episodes about two thirds of the way through where I felt like. Maybe they could have redistributed some of the stuff that was early on. And I will say this, that at the end I was satisfied and I did not need a sequel. I don't need a second or a third or a fourth season. I felt like they did what they needed to do in this show and that was enough. This is a complete world. It ends the way it needs to. All the characters are doing what they need to. At least that's my experience of the show.
2: I agree with Kristen, actually. I don't think I would need a second season.
1: Waylon, you mentioned this, but this series is set... In an area of Los Angeles, we don't see a lot on screen a lot. The San Gabriel Valley. Sam Sung Lee in interviews, you know, he talks about how he grew up there. He loves its mix of Asian cultures. He loves its food. The show's writer's room was all Asian. The directors were Asian. And it is filled with those signifiers you mentioned, Whelan. Like the characters eat Colby shrimp chips and they eat uh, super hot dry ramen. Right. It goes beyond representation matters. It goes beyond specificity. They're there to, I guess, to establish the show's bona fides, right? They're there to signal to both Asian and non Asian audiences something about the bones of this show.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think that the specificity you speak of, also, Wayland, you know, touched on earlier, it's specific to a certain population of Asian Americans sure. that are second generation Americans with parents born in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. It really put a lot of care and attention into making sure it was building that world. And, you know, I just want to make clear this isn't representing all Asian Americans by any means or all Taiwanese Americans by any means Mm -hmm. at all. But it does do a clear and specific job of depicting this world for these specific characters. And I thought it did a good job of that. And then also making sure that this isn't just 100% in a vacuum, this Mm -hmm. world. Mm -hmm. There are – Notably with one of our lead characters, there's an obsession with churros, for example, or with the Great British Bake Off, or uh, especially in LA, things are so cross-cultural. So Mm -hmm. we see also within this Taiwanese American universe that, you know, the super hot ramen that's enjoyed most is a Korean product, for example. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so there are those different moments of, for me at least, like, oh yeah, this is a clear and specific world but also in some ways very realistic because of those different things, because it's not in the vacuum and so on. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and I like the way there's a little bit of that crossover too, because there is this crucial meeting that takes place at a Korean spa that is on the territory of a Korean gang. So mm-hmm. then they have to have kind of a tete-a-tete with the Korean gang in order to get the permission to be in the spa, which then is an amazing setting for the fight scene that happens there. It kind of reminds me of like Eastern Promises and the sauna and everything. You know, um, I think like a bathhouse is a great mm-hmm. setting for a fight scene. And I wanted to also comment on the Churros thing. because 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 what I loved about this, like, kind of almost like running gag about how much Charles loves churros when he discovers churros in LA, is that either he or his brother makes a comment that it's like a cinnamon sugar covered version of a Taiwanese snack. Mm -hmm. And this Taiwanese snack is like a fried dough stick, right? Mm And it reminded me of this interaction I had with my parents years ago where McDonald's started selling these cinnamon sugar dough sticks. <laughs> and my parents were very excited to report to me. They said, did you know you can go to McDonald's and you can order this thing And you can ask them not to put the cinnamon sugar on. And then it tastes exactly like (laughs) this fried dough stick, which is a Chinese snack. And my parents were so delighted to discover this. Uh Somehow the screenwriters here had kind of made a similar connection Uh that, you know, you have this snack that comes out of Mexican culture um, that is very similar to this Chinese snack. And I just like, again, to Kristen's point about the cross-cultural connection, I just loved kind of... Finding those those connections and realizing that, you know, my parents had a similar kind of churro experience.
1: Yeah, that's great. I mean, there's a universality to fried dough. All cultures in the world <laughs> know know the joys of fried dough. I want to talk about the Korean thing because there is a friend of Bruce, the character played by Jun Lee named TK. He's Korean. He's the guy who makes the connection to the Korean gang. I sometimes think that character belonged in a more mm-hmm. manic. I guess, or broader show. Cause, uh, Falchuk in an interview said that the comedic characters on the show, Bruce and TK, they had to feel like real people. He said, they're funny and they get into trouble and there's some real goofiness to them, but they should never be clowns. Well, (laughs) I'd argue mission accomplished with Bruce, but TK, and it's not even the performance, it's how the show is using him that goes awful big at times. What would you guys think?
2: This was one of the things that didn't always work for me is this character of TK, he is such a clown, and then the most awful things (laughs) befall him, and I felt at times that I was not able to kind of sit with that, you know, that I was not able to accept that this guy would still be so good humored and goofy and along for the ride with these brothers after these terrible, terrible things befell him. You know, it kind of reminded me of like in Breaking Bad, the Jesse Pinkman character starts that series very broad, very goofy And then terrible things would fall Jesse, but he does not keep his good humor. He is really Uh traumatized by all the things that happened to him so that he is a completely different character at the end of Breaking Bad. Mm -hmm. For TK, they were giving him almost like an entire Breaking Bad series worth of trauma, but (laughs) expecting him not to change and to keep this kind of like a bullion, like fun loving nature. And so Kristen, you had mentioned you really like that scene in the driving range. That's a scene that involves TK. To me, actually, that driving range scene did not really work. And it wasn't as much the TK of it all. I felt like Charles in that scene, when he goes on this like rampage at the driving range, it seemed motivated by the fact that he had just experienced like a romantic rejection.
1: Yeah.
0: And yeah. that
2: felt really icky to me. This is a cold-blooded killer who had one bad romantic experience, and now he is like murdering an entire driving range full of people in order to get out those feelings. And so mm-hmm. those are the moments where I could not really follow the show all the way that I
3: kind of stopped short of enjoying it fully. But they were bad guys. They were bad guys at the driving range.
1: Sure, they were bad guys. <laughs> but this goes to the ambition you guys were talking about, the the variation in tone. That's the risk, right? That's always the risk when you have something that is this much of a genre mashup that is taking in this many different tones and has to kind of walk that tightrope. Kristen, how'd it work for you?
3: Yeah, I mean... I think there were certain points I will say TK actually just irritated me <laughs> because he is. Sure. I, I can see exactly what you all mean about, you know, that it almost seemed unfair how much he gets tortured and he somehow stays good humored about it. It's like, how how did that come about? But because he was so irritating, I was fine with it. I'm like, yeah, go ahead, do that to him. He's kind of getting on my nerves.
2: <laughs> he was asking for yeah. it. Yeah. I wanted to bring up how much I loved that cover of First Cut is the Deepest, the Cheryl Crow song <gasps> that's yes. done in Mandarin. It plays over the driving range scene. And yes. when it comes on, I was so kind of just taken with this cover. Mm -hmm. Um, Even though the scene ultimately didn't work for me, I immediately looked up that song on Spotify and it didn't have any plays. And so I'm like, am I the first person to listen to this song? (laughs) (laughs) It
0: um,
2: reminded me of Fei Wong's cover of Dreams from Chunking Express. Like I realized like I've got a real soft spot for Chinese covers of Western (laughs) pop songs. And I have really been enjoying the heck out of that song.
3: Yeah, I totally agree with that. That was actually a note that I made to myself also about the music. And even though I know you didn't like what actually happened in the driving range scene, that song over that action was just beautiful to me.
1: Yeah, great needle drops in this. Also, solid jokes. Like, I, I'm sorry, this this got me. It was an easy joke, but he runs the number one seafood restaurant in the valley. <laughs> What's it called? The number one seafood restaurant.
2: <laughs> I was sitting by myself in my living room, and I laughed out loud at that. Yeah. I don't
1: think it's dumb. I think it's actually pretty smart, and I think we all kind of dug it. But uh, tell us what you think about the brother's son. Find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash PCHH. Up next, what is making us happy this week?
4: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Homes.com. When you're home shopping as a parent, you have lots of questions about local schools. That's why each listing on Homes.com includes extensive reports on local schools, including photos, parent reviews, student-teacher ratio, school rankings, and more. The information is from multiple trusted sources and curated by a dedicated in-house research team. It's also you can make the right decision for your family. Homes.com. We've done your homework. This message comes from NPR sponsor CarMax. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because CarMax believes you shouldn't just settle for a car, you should love your car. That's why every car they sell has CarMax certified quality. So you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. Don't settle, find love at first drive. Start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This message comes from NPR sponsor ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. Enter ServiceNow. It puts AI to work for people across your business, providing intelligent tools to help remove frustration and supercharge productivity. And all of that is built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Learn more at ServiceNow.com slash AI for people.
1: Now it is time for our favorite segment of this week and every week. What is making us happy this week? Waylon, what is making you happy this week?
2: What's making me happy is a new to me novel called Mm -hmm. Silver Nitrate. It's by the author Silvia Moreno Garcia. It came out in July 2023, so it's still in hardcover, it's relatively new and it's a novel about two best friends living in Mexico City in the early 90s. They both work kind of in and around the film and television industry and they get wrapped up in a spooky mystery involving a Nazi occultist and a secret film that was never released mm-hmm. and might contain all sorts of untold dark powers. You know, we were talking about the specificity of The Brother's Son mm-hmm. and this has a lot of specificity too. It's set in a very specific time and place, Mexico City in the early 90s. You very immersed and because it's the 90s there's no internet or smartphones and the two characters have to you know solve this spooky mystery and get to the bottom of everything by doing research and dusty film (laughs) archives and looking in the phone book and so that had a really almost nostalgic Nancy Drew quality to it that I loved and then it just ends in this very kind of explosive you know set piece involving magic spells and dark magic which is very if you like the series Vampire Dive. Diaries. This uh-huh. will like scratch that vampire diaries itch. So super fun. And then like the core friendship between the two characters is also a delight, and I think would have made the novel super enjoyable even without the occult stuff. Great read. This is Silver Nitrate by
3: Sylvia Moreno Garcia.
1: Oh man, that sounds fascinating. I'm I'm in. I'm in. Thank you so much, Waylon Wong. Kristen Meinzer, what is making you happy this week?
3: What's making me happy this week is the podcast Fad Camp. That's F-A-D-C-A-M-P. Okay. Fad camp is is hosted by comedians Connor Dowling and Grace Mulvey, both of whom have struggled with body acceptance and diet culture, in each episode they look at a topic related to fatness or anti-fatness, and they dissect it and laugh at it. They've done mm-hmm. episodes on the Biggest Loser, wedding diets, uh, revenge body with Chloe uh, Kardashian, and of course, fad camps for children. What I love about Fad Camp is that Connor and Grace are intellectually certain about how anti-fatness is damaging to themselves and to the world. And yet they're still vulnerable enough to admit that they sometimes, you know, struggle with their own body acceptance. And and that's what I really love about the show. It's, you know, the information mixed with the vulnerability Mm -hmm. and the humor. It's just such a welcome show that always makes me laugh and think. And I think it's... Something that everybody should check out, especially right now. Mm -hmm. Again, that is the podcast Fad Camp.
1: Okay, thank you very much, Kristen. What's making me happy is the monologue from Barbie. Yeah, I said it. Come <laughs> for me. This has been much discussed, including on this very show. Uh, there was a piece in the Times about it just this week. This is the moment uh, when America Ferrera's character Gloria holds forth for a couple of minutes about the contradictions of the expectations that are placed on women. And there have been those people I respect who have dismissed it as eye rolling and cringe and feminism 101 and too basic and a gross oversimplification. And even a dumbing down of very important issues and ideas. Uh, But I spent a couple days over the holiday break with a friend of ours. She is in her 60s, she's uh, spent her life in sales, which she always calls a man's business. And she's more than held her own in that business. She has excelled in it. And she's of a generation of a place in time uh, where she would never consider herself a feminist. She calls herself a tough broad. Um, The minute she saw me, she asked me about Barbie, uh, which I thought was odd because she doesn't watch movies. Um, The only reason she saw it, it was, because it was a cultural phenomenon everyone was talking about it she wanted to check it out for herself i have known this person 20 years never have we talked about pop culture she asked me what i thought about the speech in that movie uh, i said I, I dug it a lot and she said she rewound and rewatched it 3 times that is not a thing she has ever done mm-hmm. and then she quoted it to me at length inserting examples of something that was said in the movie from her career because she had never heard her life expressed in such stark and succinct. And yes, yes, I get it. Simplified, but in such a simplified way. So this was just such a reminder for me that, you know, everybody, including critics, can get jaded once we've seen something millions of times. And we just have to remember that that is not a universal phenomenon. The thing about the mainstream is just how main it is, right? It has a power to reach people, to connect to people, to serve them for a moment, she felt like her experiences weren't unique to her. And just given the success of that movie, there must be maybe millions of people who had an experience like that. And I just think it's myopic to to dismiss it. And that's why I... <laughs> have my finger on the pulse of a movie that came out six months ago and that is my favorite thing uh, and is what is making me happy this week and if you want links for what we recommended plus some more recommendations sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash pop culture newsletter and that brings us to the end of our show Waylon Wong Kristen Meinzer thank you so much for being here thank
2: you thank you this is so fun
1: this episode was produced by Hafsa Fatima and edited by Mike Katzif our supervising producer is Jessica Reedy and Hello Kimin provides our theme music thank you all for listening to pop culture happy hour from NPR i I'm Glenn Weldon, and we'll see you all next week.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor MassMutual. The Financial Educators Council says 39% of Americans don't have someone to go to for financial advice, but you can plan for the short and long term with someone backed by 170 years of financial expertise at MassMutual.com. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Your business faces specific challenges and unique opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, custom-tailored to your short- and long-term goals. Backed by the expertise, strategy, and resources of a top 10 commercial bank, A dedicated team works with you to support your success and help achieve your goals. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial.
4: Okay, close your eyes for a
3: second. Now imagine you're on your dream vacation. No work calls to answer, no text messages to respond to, just your suitcase
4: and an opportunity. The opportunity to just take yourself out of your routine and travel deeper how to actually take that dream trip. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR.